0: So here another very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And may the Lord not only bless this to our understanding, but explain through his spirit what he means and how we are capable of doing something so outrageous, so impossible. Pray with me. Our dear Lord, as we read through this passage this morning, I know you're setting the tone for so many other things that are going to be said, but... In these four commands, in these four principles, as we are going to look at them, some of the very core beliefs of Christianity are being expressed and established. And so, Lord, please, as we grapple with this, the stunning nature of this command, that um, we'll internalize this. And, and, And as you say to your disciples, both then and now, that this is for those who will hear. So it is specifically and very fervently my prayer that those who are listening will also hear in the way that you meant it when you said it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As intelligent people, we look around us in the world and we see that the world is sick. We don't have to look very far, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at society around you, especially here in the West, and see that it's sick. It needs help. Now, as a Christian, you know what the answer is to that sickness. You know that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you know that if you can share that gospel with the world, that you're exposing them to the very formula that will save the world because it has saved you. Now, the problem is. Getting people to hear. You see, that's the issue. It's it's not so much that we need to get out and get the gospel out anymore. I mean, the gospel is spread around the world. The gospel is being shared, folks. The problem is people don't hear it. They're, They're not listening to it. So how do you authenticate your message? You have people in your life. You have loved ones, you have people at work, you have people in your neighborhood, you have people that you deal with who do not know the Lord, and you would like to see them in heaven. You would like to be with them. And so therefore, you would like to share the message of Jesus Christ with them. How do you authenticate it? Now, the way that Jesus authenticated it, obviously, we've talked about this a lot, haven't we? He authenticated it through his miracles he authenticated both himself and the message that he brought. We've talked about that one-two punch quite a bit here, about the one-two punch of apostling. Jesus is the apostle from heaven sent by the Father to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he would always lead with his left, if you will. He would lead with those miracles so that people would know and uh, re- recognize that only God could do this. These are impossible things. Walking on water, healing the sick, feeding thousands with just a couple of loaves of bread and a You fish, raising Lazarus from the dead. Only God can do that. And so, therefore, he authenticated himself and his message by working those great miracles. Well, when Jesus went back to the Father, he he gave that power to the group of men they left behind, the apostles. And they did the same thing. They authenticated themselves and the message by working mighty deeds. But by the end of Acts, already we're seeing. Those miracles wane. So how do you today authenticate the message of the good news of the kingdom of God? You can't work miracles. Now, Jesus says if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you can say from a mountain, move from here to there, and it will. And, and, And I will tell you that if you have faith and it was God's will to move a mountain, you could do so. But typically, it's not God's will to move mountains. You don't see many mountains being moved today. So what is it and how is it that you can bear evidence of a miracle so powerful, so great, so life-changing that no human being could possibly do it? Well, Jesus tells us, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless Those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And if you can do this... You're doing something that is humanly impossible. That's what I'm going to try to make the point this morning. I've already tried to make it, uh, you know, solidify it in your heads. That this is humanly impossible for a fallen human being to do. We cannot do that. We cannot love our enemies. It's hard enough for us to love our friends and our family and our neighbors and those who look like us and talk like us and love us. It's impossible for a fallen human being full of bitterness and full of this world, in my mind. And I hope to make that point to actually love our enemies, and yet Jesus commands us to do that. So I hope to show you this morning not only um, why he says that, but how actually you can do this. You can actually keep these commandments, and by doing so, bring glory to God and authenticate the message of the gospel. So let's kind of put things into perspective. We have a progression going on here in Luke's narrative. Jesus started out on top of a mountain and he is communing with his father because it's a very important day. Big things are going to happen on this day. He's going to choose 12 men, 11 of whom are going to form the foundation of his church. And one is the one who's going to send him to the cross so that he can be that propitiation for our sins. These are important 12 men. And he chooses them from a vast number of disciples. Then like Moses, he descends from that mountain mountain with his disciples and he begins to teach after he works some miracles to authenticate who he is. And as he begins to teach, the first thing that he does is he he begins to describe what a kingdom dweller looks like, uh, the state of being of that kingdom dweller. And we saw that in in the wheels or the blessings or the beatitudes that he started out with. Now his four beatitudes, the ones that Luke uses, express what it means to be redeemed. That that it, it is someone who is so poor, spiritually speaking, and recognizes that they're beggars, that they reach out for God for salvation and are therefore saved. That's a blessed state. And they're hungry for the things of God. They're hungry for reconciliation with God and not the things of this world. They weep over their sins. They're mortified over their sinfulness. And the world hates them. And the world hates them because the world loves its own and they're not of the world. So Jesus states this is what a kingdom dweller looks like. And then he goes right into the four woes and says, this is what a kingdom dweller doesn't look like, okay? And and he's in the sense, as, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, he's warning his disciples about allowing this to creep into their ministry and their thoughts because there's nothing like these idols that will impede them. Well, now we're, we're seeing kind of, we're, we're actually we're moving into a section where he's going to start talking more about what's going on inside and how to be a disciple. Because after all, he is teaching these 12 men, 11 of whom are going to stay, he's teaching them plus many others how to be disciples because it's going to be important that they are disciples like this when he leaves and goes back to his father. And that's where we're going to be headed in the next couple of weeks, Now, as we went through the woes in particular, we noticed that underlying each one of those woes were multiple idols, idols that impeded our efforts, idols that stood between us and God. And so what Jesus, idols like, for instance, wealth or righteousness or hedonism or acceptance, all of those would stop these disciples in their tracks and keep them from accomplishing what Jesus wants them to accomplish, which is the building of the kingdom of God. Well, now he's going to sort of slip into the greatest idol of all. The greatest, the biggest idol. The idol that if it is allowed to hold sway to these disciples, there would be no Christian church today. And that's the idol of self. The idol... That places itself in front. The the, the idol that says. No I'm not going to do that. Because it's not good for me. The idol that is self-centered. And and self-focused. And self-aggrandizing. That's the idol that Jesus is now going to start talking about. You're going to have to destroy that idol. If you're going to be able to make it through the narrow gate. And get on that hard road. That is going to lead to the foundation of this kingdom. So we're going to talk about the idol of self. But I kind of need to qualify this because on the one hand i'm calling self an idol and on the other hand the title of my sermon is loving with your redeemed self so what do we have two selves that we have to contend with well actually yes from the moment you become a christian you have two selves and the skeptics look at you and they smile and they say psychiatry has a word for that it's schizophrenia Well, no, we're not schizophrenics. But Paul explains it, I think, very well in in the book of Ephesians, fourth chapter. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he clearly identifies two different selves. The new self, the new man, the new woman, the new creation in Christ Jesus. Reflecting the righteousness and the holiness of God himself and the old self. We often talk about it as being the spirit and the flesh. But a a battle starts I mean, a battle starts. People think, oh, I'm going to come to Jesus and peace is going to be there for the rest of my life. No, that's really when the battle starts. Because you have a battle between your new self and your old self. Boy, I tell you what, Paul really spelled it out to the Romans in chapter 7. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, that comforts me to know that Paul has the same struggles that I have, and I know that you're having those same struggles between the old self and the new self. Well, the old self is what I'm talking about when I talk about a self that Is an idol. That's the old you. That's the fallen you. That's your flesh. Sometimes we talk about it. The new self, the new creation, that's the redeemed self. So when I say that if we're going to love the way that Jesus tells us to love here, we're going to have to love with our redeemed self. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the new creation in Christ. Now, with that said, and that kind of as a background, let's kind of jump into our text here. Because we have four commands four principles actually you can almost combine them into a single principle because there's one theme but four nuanced presentations of that theme and four commands but before we get there i want you to notice what jesus says at the outset he says but i say to you who hear and and that was my prayer my prayer this morning is that we will hear now, now jesus tended to use this phrase quite a bit uh, and sometimes, uh, for, for instance, in Mark, he would say things like, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, you know. And then in Revelation, when he's revealing to the churches, the seven churches, he says that um, uh, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He even would say it to his disciples sometimes in a negative sense, again from Mark, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear and Do you not remember? Well, when Jesus says, for those of you who hear, he's not talking about those little bitty tiny fibers in the inner ear that are picking up the sound waves that are created by his diaphragm and tickling to an auditory signal that goes to the brain that you then interpret as speech. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about more than just listening, more than just hearing. He's talking about understanding, comprehending, internalizing, and applying what he's talking about. Way too often, brothers and sisters, we listen but we don't hear. And you don't think I noticed, do you? It goes in one ear, it goes through that gray matter you call a brain of yours, and then it goes right out the other ear with no residual in between. Now, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about comprehending, grabbing, understanding, and hearing what he has to say. And that's my prayer this morning. That you will hear what the scripture is saying. You will hear what this means. Or at least the best interpretation I can give to it. Well, going on. Jesus kind of... Shocks us. I don't know if it shocks you. I mean, probably doesn't because you've heard it so many times, but you can only imagine what this meant to those who were there when he says right off the bat, love your enemies. The word love that he uses is the word from agape. We talk about agape, you know, that kind of love. It's a passionate love. It means to cherish someone. It's a very personal love. It's a very emotional love. It's not some kind of distant love that you can intellectualize or kick up into a theory. It's a real solid I love you kind of love, okay? And, and, and it's also imperative. We talked about the imperatives a couple of weeks ago when we talked about that word rejoice, and Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, you know, when people hate you, <laughs> when they do all these things, do you rejoice because great is your reward in heaven? And we talked about that being an imperative, it being a command and being kind of strange because not only was it an imperative, but it was also in the passive voice. Well, this is not in the passive voice. It is a command. It is an imperative, but it isn't the active voice. In other words, Jesus is actively telling us something to do that he expects results from. It is not an intellectual exercise. He expects us to listen to what he is saying, and he expects us to have some kind of reaction to that, and that is going to be made absolutely clear. So, the first thing that he says is that imperative love, and then he identifies those that we are supposed to love. Now, I don't think anyone here has any problem with understanding that love is important to a Christian, and we love each other. We love the body, we love Christ, we love God. There's all kinds of love involved with being a Christian, but this kind of love, this kind of passionate, emotional, cherishing love, Jesus says, needs to be directed towards your enemies. Now, the word enemy means a hostile opponent. It means someone who stands in opposition to you. It means someone who wants to hurt you. It doesn't mean somebody on the other side of the world. It means somebody right smack in front of you that wants to bring harm to you. And Jesus says, I want you to actively love them while they are your enemies. This is radical stuff. In fact... It wasn't being taught. One of the scholars that I listen to and, or I read, and I, 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 I pay attention to what he says because he's a good scholar, He says that he has researched this. I haven't researched it. He has. I'm telling you what his findings were. He said that I have researched this, and to my knowledge, I cannot find any evidence of any ancient text in any uh, 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 discipline or, or any uh, location that this is being taught. This is radical. This is brand new. No one is teaching you to love your enemies. Everyone is teaching you to love those who love you. No one's teaching you to love your enemies. In fact, this is the exact opposite of what was being taught by the rabbis at the time. They weren't teaching you to love your enemies. No, they were teaching you to love each other. Because what they had done is sort of twisted, uh, well not twisted, but just sort of emphasized what they wanted to emphasize. When, When the law in Leviticus says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Well, the way that they were teaching that and interpreting that is that the command stopped with your neighbor. Stopped with your people. In other words, love the Jews and hate everyone else. So they were actively teaching to hate the Gentiles, to hate especially the Greeks and the Romans because they were being oppressed by the Romans. And so they're teaching that. In fact, if you go to the corresponding passage to this, it's not exactly the same in Matthew, but it's close. Matthew, when Jesus is teaching in that chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Because that is what was actively being taught. And so what Jesus is teaching here is radical. It is new and it is absolutely upside down. I mean, over the years, people, especially skeptics, look at this and they say, that's ridiculous. Why would you want to love your enemies? That's absurd. That's crazy talk. And so they, they disavow the, this kind of teaching. But here's my point. This is not natural. It is not natural for you or for me or any fallen, sinful Inherently wicked individual, which we all are, it is not natural for us to love our enemies. Now, there are some theologians who would really get upset at me right now, more than a few, because they would say, God never commands you to do anything that you can't do. That he everything he says, if Jesus is going to command you to do something, then you have the capability within yourself of doing that. I'm going to make exactly the opposite argument. You cannot, in and of your fallen self. It is only God who loves his enemies truly. And the way that Jesus is talking about it now. This is a divine love. This is a God oriented love. It comes from God and cannot have any other source. A fallen human being cannot love his or her enemies, period. You show me one example of a a fallen. Oh, they may they may love people, but to openly and actively love an enemy without Christ in their lives. I'm going to make the point is absolutely impossible. And we'll get into a little bit more of exactly what kind of love Jesus is talking about here. So therefore, this is a love that can only result from your redeemed self. It's not going to come from you. It's going to come from that part of you that God has redeemed. It's going to come from your born-again part. It's going to come from the new man, the new woman. That's where it's going to come from, because it's not natural or possible for a human being. Now, in the next command... Jesus goes on and says, do good to those who hate you. Very similar. But now, notice we talked about the active voice and the imperative in the love. Well, that is reflected now in the do part of this. Do good. To those who hate you. It is also an imperative. It is also in the active voice. And it is the physical manifestation of the condition of the heart that loves their enemy. So you will do good to those who hate you. The word hate, I don't know that we need to go in and define that. Other than to say it is what is known in grammar as a participle. And in Greek, a participle talks about a state of being or a condition. Now, in this particular sense, it talks about a condition that exists... And that continues to, has existed, continues to exist, and more than likely will continue to exist in the future. So Jesus is not just telling you arbitrarily to, to, um, uh, to do good things for the people who hate you in some kind of far off sense. He's talking about active, ongoing, in the midst of, while they're hating you, while that hatred is being manifested, manifested to you, this, I want you to do good for them. And by the way, to do good is not random acts of kindness. It is not just bizarre little separated. I'm going to have a little checklist of things that I'm going to do good. They're going to take care of people. And so therefore, I do good to my satisfaction. And so therefore, I feel better about myself. Even though that person doesn't like me, I'm going to still do good things for them. That's not what Jesus is saying, folks. What he is saying is to do things that will benefit them. Do things that will aid them do things that will make them have a better life and enjoy their life more than they are now, sometimes, if not always, at the expense of your own happiness and your own comfort. This is hard stuff because this is a, a deep uh, a, a, a manifestation of the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. This is a, uh, not a detached, it's not an impersonal, it's not a mechanical action but a real action. So let's just take a look at that first verse because that I mean he could have stopped there but he's not finished. But he says, "I command you, my disciples, that I have my eye fixed upon, remember in the verse 20, he's got his eyes, his gaze on his disciples. I command you actively that even though you have people who oppose you and and have a deep hatred for you that is manifest to you. That is real in front of you. I want you to love them. And I want the pouring out of that love to take action. I want, you to, I want to see you do good things for those who hate you. Well, as I said, he's not finished. Now, now, now there's something that I kind of touched on. But too often could be part of this. All right, somehow I get to the point where I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to love my enemies. All right, I'm going to kind of grit my teeth and go through this. And I'm going to have this sort of mechanical method of going about this. Well, Jesus says, no, I want to know what the condition of your heart is. In other words, what are your motives? What are your intentions? Literally, if we were to put your heart out on the table, what would we see? And that's when he says, I want you to bless those who curse you. Now, we've talked a lot about blessing and curses, haven't we? The wheels and the woes that we've seen so far. Different word for bless. But what this word bless means is to bestow on someone favor, to bestow on someone good things from the heart. Don't leave that last part out. It is from your heart. It is from a right intention. It is from the right motive that you bestow and ask for good things to happen to this person who, once again, is in a state of cursing you. Another participle. So while they're cursing you, an active voice command. I want you to bless them, to bestow blessings upon them. The idea of cursing carries with it the uh, a loathing. A, 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 a demeaning, a, an abhorrence of someone. In other words, I, I want to Im, impose my, my, the, my heart. Once again, it's from the heart. But my heart is bitter towards you. And, and I have all these negative feelings about you. And I want those negative feelings somehow to actually impact you. That's the reason I'm cursing you. But there's another nuance here. Not only does it open up your heart... The implication of the word blessed, especially with a Christian or a Jew, is that you are asking God to do the blessing. Whoa. The last thing on earth you want to do is to hypocritically ask God to bless someone that you'd rather curse, right? Right? And so therefore, it is to get God involved with this. It is to take your soul. It is to take your motives and your intent. It is to take your heart and spread it out on the table as if it wasn't already spread out. Because God knows everything. But it is to spread it out on the table and say, God, would you please bring favor, your favor, your goodness upon this one who is cursing me and is going on cursing me. And I don't think he's ever going to stop cursing me. Okay? That's the the degree of blessing that this... And and by the way, the curse is exactly the opposite. I doubt they're calling on God to do that, but they're calling on a higher power to bring all of the bad things I can think of down on you. My loathing of you, my abhorrence of you, my ongoing hatred of you, I want that to be manifested on you in some way, and I'm praying to the higher powers to do that. That's what it means to curse. Do you think this is humanly possible? Do you think this is something that we as fallen human beings can do? Well, what Jesus says implicitly in the curse, I mean, bless those who curse you. He says explicitly in the next one. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, there's no question to a Christian who Jesus means to pray to, you're praying to God. So definitely God is now right in the middle of this. Pray to those who abuse you. Once again, a participle. Once again, a a word that speaks of either abuse or mistreatment. And it's very broad in its application. It can be verbal. It can be emotional. It can be spiritual. It can be physical. It can be actual physical suffering that someone is inflicting on you. And it has been going on. It is going on. And it probably will go on in the future. And you're praying God's blessing upon them so that not, not so that it will change without any conception of yourself in it. So we need to back up just a wee bit. We need to look at the word prayer, okay? Jesus says pray for them. What kind of prayers do you think he means? Well, he, he, we have to kind of pull this from the tone of, of the rest of them, but I can almost tell you for certain he's not talking about imprecatory prayers, Okay? I mean, I know that a lot of people would like to pray imprecatory prayers. And by the way, if you don't know what an imprecatory prayer is, just read Psalm 35. Okay, David was big on imprecatory prayers. This is just one verse from that. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. That's an imprecatory prayer. And more than likely, Jesus is not saying, hey, pray those kind of prayers to the people who abuse you. Although you might like to. And also, he's not saying pray self-centered prayers, self-focused prayers. Lord, I just pray that this persecution would stop. I wish that you would speak to them so that they would stop abusing me like they're abusing me. Do you know what kind of prayer that in reality he's, he's actually asking us to pray? For the salvation of the one who's abusing us. Our enemy, the one who hates us, the one who's cursing us. For their salvation. The greatest gift that any human being can have is salvation, and that God would pour down his love upon this individual and save them so that they can spend an eternity in heaven with us. Humans can't do that. Sorry. I don't think a human being is possible of doing that or capable of doing that. Now, we do have examples of human beings doing that though. We have them in scripture, we have them in history. Some probably exist in the world around us. The greatest ones, of course, are from Scripture. I mean, we see this kind of behavior amongst the apostles in chapter 5 of Acts. I mean, we see them being beaten by the Sanhedrin, by the government. I mean, that's 39 lashes. I mean, that's blooding up your back in a horrible sense. And they leave rejoicing that they had the honor to be beaten. Thank you guys for doing that. We love you. Because we got the honor of being beaten for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, constantly praying for those who afflicted him. In fact, he even went so far as to say, I would be damned if my brothers could be saved. I don't know if you could say that. I couldn't. Ever. But that's the degree of love that he exhibited this love that is the love of God. That only God has. Stephen the martyr. I mean, while they're stoning him, he's praying for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Very similar to what Jesus said when he was on the cross. And, of course, Jesus is the great example. He is the example. He is our model. His entire life was a life of being mocked and beat up and spit on. They pulled his beard and the passion. They whipped him twice. They they flogged him to within an inch of his life. They made him carry his cross through town. They yelled at him. They threw insults at him. They spit him at him. They put him up on the cross. And after he has taken on the sins of humanity, as some of them right down there uh, uh, defiling him and, 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 and hating him. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The greatest example of this is Jesus coming from heaven to earth. As we read in John, that's why I say John just got this. I mean, he just nails it. God's love for us wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the greatest example of some being loving his enemies and doing good for those who hate him and and blessing those who curse him and saving those who abuse him in every kind of way. That is what God does. And only God does that. And I am here this morning as a witness to that. Because everything that is stated here about the recalcitrant, rebellious, haters of God, I have done. I was that person on the other side. I was that person that needed to be drug out of the sewer and brought into the light, kicking and screaming. I didn't come looking for God. He came looking for me. And when I was lost, when I was completely lost... He loved me. So if we're going to understand this, we're going to have to look at it from the beginning. We're just going to, that's the only way we're really going to, to, to understand this because I'm talking about the love of God and I'm not talking about a love that human beings can manufacture on their own. And so that goes back to where we started. God is love. We read that earlier. Love is God. God is the definition of love. Now, the love that God has is a white-hot love that exists between the members of the Trinity. It is a self-contained, self-sufficient love. It does not need us. God doesn't need us as far as giving or receiving love. He is completely self-contained. It is in his mercy and his grace and his compassion and the fact that he made us in his image that he bestows that incredible, amazing love on us. Once again, that's what John said beautifully, beautifully put. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because the kind of love we are talking about and the kind of love that Jesus is stating is a love that only comes from God. Fallen, sinful, dead people don't love this way. Have I made my my point? You think, do I need to make it some more? Well, let me read to you from Paul. Or actually not. Let me do this. Let me give you a principle. Let me read the principle so I make sure that I get it out the way I want to because I wrote this down. A person who is dead in their trespasses and sins, who does not have a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and does not have a redeemed soul capable of holding the Spirit of God, cannot possibly hope to love in the way that Jesus is telling us to love. And it's because of that fallenness it's because we are at enmity with God that we cannot love. Even though a lot of religions are out there that talk about love. Not, 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 not this kind of love. This is divine love. And so therefore, there's a progress, a progression that happens. It starts with God's love. It starts with the love that is God. And then that love, as John 3:16 tells us famously, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that Whoever believes in him should not perish or will not perish but have everlasting life. It starts with God's love and his desire that that love would be poured out upon those that he has pulled out of darkness. Those who were at enmity with him. Those who hated him. Those who are his enemies. That's who he pours his love out upon. Paul, once again, I mean, beautifully Deals with these two selves that we struggle with in the second chapter of Ephesians. It goes like this. Says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of the world. Do you think that person, that person, can love their enemies the way Jesus just told us to? No, they can't. It's impossible. But there's a turnaround, you see. There's a turnaround that occurs, and that is when God regenerates the heart. There's a transformation, new heart, the old heart of stone taken out, a new heart of flesh put in. And now there's a redeemed self, and it is a result of, and it is filled with, not our own love, not our own ability, or righteousness, or forgiveness, or mercy, but God's. As Paul continues... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Emphasizing that, it is when you are in Christ Jesus, that you are able and have the possibility of loving this way. Now, as I said at the outset, this is primarily a discussion for disciples. That's really where Jesus is. But let me just pause and, and, and at least say one thing to those who might not be believers, those who might not. Uh, for, for one thing, if you're still with me, if, if you're still listening, you're, you're, you're probably looking for answers. You're, you're probably asking yourself what it's all about. And it is my prayer that that is an indication that God is working through you and beginning to bring a realization of these things to you. But this process of redemption is absolutely essential for love, but it is also absolutely essential for your justification for you to stand before a holy God. You'll never do it. On your own. Humans can't do it. We can't fix what's wrong with this. That's why those Beatitudes were so important. Blessed are you if you are spiritually bankrupt because you know you need a savior. Well, if God is leading you to the point where you know you need a savior, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you hunger after the things of God rather than things of the world. Blessed are you if you're mortified all of a sudden over your sin and it's not fun anymore because that is your heart changing and taking on the righteousness and the holiness of God. And even blessed are you if the world hates you. I mean, nobody wants to be hated, but the world loves its own. If it hates you, that means you're no longer its own. You're a child of God. So I can tell you if you don't know Jesus and you... Truly, in your heart, repent and come to him. And and once again, God isn't mocked. He isn't fooled. You're not going to walk down the aisle and say a couple of words and not mean it and fool God. And he's the one you've got to impress. He's the one that needs to know the nature of your heart. But if in the depths of your soul and your heart you repent and you turn to him and you say, Be my Savior, be my Lord, and you put your trust in him entirely, I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, he'll save you. Because that's what he came to do, is to save people let's go back to that progression that we started because what happens is all of this originates with God with a love that we cannot even imagine a comprehend a love that is between the three members of the Godhead and when a heart is redeemed when it's born again when we have a redeemed self he pours that love into our hearts but that's not the end of the story folks that's the beginning of the story that it's not designed to stay there and, and become stagnant. That's not what the love of God is designed to do. That love is designed to be shared with a world that is dying. That desperately needs to see the same love that transformed you. So how on earth do you show the love of God? By doing something that's impossible. By manifesting A miracle. Jesus did miracles. Jesus was the one who walked on water to authenticate his message. The apostles did miracles. You can't do miracles, but you have the evidence of a miracle. When Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, the first time after healing a man who had been lame for 40 years... The Sanhedrin didn't get to see the miracle, but they saw the evidence of the miracle. Everyone knew this man. He'd been sitting in the temple gates for 40 years, and now he's dancing around like a calf in spring. That's the manifestation of a miracle that has actually occurred on the inside of you. When people see you doing what Jesus has just said, loving your enemies, doing good for those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who are actively abusing you, this is not humanly possible. And so something has happened when they see that behavior. And so God is glorified just as if he worked the miracle right in front of them. The modern-day miracle, folks, is your soul, if you're saved. A soul that was at enmity with God, that now all of a sudden loves him and wants to please him and follow him and actually will be able to stand in his presence. This is the modern-day miracle. And the evidence of that miracle is the way you act. And Jesus gives you an impossible task so that no one can do it except your redeemed self. That's why this is so important. That's why the redemption is so important. Now, if you're like me, I'm not there yet. How do I get there? Kay and I were watching a movie the, the other night. I know many of you have seen it. Probably it'll come out as we go through this section of Luke. But we're watching a movie, Sabina. And it comes to that part where this amazing forgiveness occurs, where she actually loves and says she loves and kisses the very man who killed her entire family. It was back in Nazi Germany. And, and when we saw that manifestation of loving your enemy, Kay and I looked at each other and said, not me. No way that that's going to happen. So, so how do you get from here to there? How do you begin to love in that way? Well, you need to understand where the love's coming from, first of all. You, you, you see, that's why I took you back to the beginning and said, and that's why I've been making this point over and over and over and over and over again, ad, what is it, ad nauseum? Yeah, to, I mean, over and over again, that this is not possible for a human being to do. And the reason is, is that we're human beings, and a lot of us are human doings. We're not even human beings. I mean, we do, do, do. And when somebody gives us a task, we say, I've got to do it. Okay, so man, I'm going to love that enemy. (laughs) I'm going to do everything that Jesus says. Well, I can tell you, if that's what you do, you're going to fall flat on your face and be a failure. Because it happens over and over again. It happens with every non-Christ-like religion that's out there. Because you can't do that. That's the whole point. You can't do it. It's not humanly possible. So if you're going to do that, it's going to be Christ who does it through you. It's going to be the love of God that is actually going to be working through you that loves that enemy and blesses that one who curses you openly, and does good for the one who hates you and actually prays God's blessing and salvation upon the very one who is in the process of abusing you. That only comes from God. And the only way that you're going to do that is if it is God doing it through you. So, I know this is counterintuitive. I know that as human beings... We do things. That's the way we respond. We're 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 gonna. I have to be involved with it some way. Well, rather than trying to do this, pursue Jesus. Fill yourself with Jesus. Dig into the word and spend time with Jesus because the closer to the surface of your life your redeemed self is, the more of Jesus' love that is going to be coming out rather than that human love that tries to cover it up. So forget about the human aspect of it. You can't do it. Pursue Jesus Christ. Fill yourself with Jesus. It is when you are in Jesus That you are capable of doing these things. And the closer and the fuller you are of Jesus, the more his love is going to flow through you. Because it's natural for him. It's not natural for you. It's natural for him. So if he's at the forefront, then his love is going to pour out in a way that you can't possibly do on your own. So how do you fill yourself with Jesus? And you're all waiting for a silver bullet. You're not going to get one. I mean, Scripture tells you. I mean, you know this. We'll go over it over and over again. You know how you fill yourself with Jesus. He's left his word for you to bathe yourself in, to inundate yourself with, to dive into it, to read it and study it and meditate on it every single day, not once a week, not just on Wednesdays and Sundays, not just 10 minutes in the morning when you do devotions, but study it in-depthly. Get yourself a study Bible. Buy some some commentaries. Come to our Bible studies, or if you don't like the way i teach find one that you do but dev delve deep into the word because that's where you're going to meet jesus and the more you're filled with this word the more you're going to be filled with jesus and the less you're going to be filled with yourself i'll I'll, I'll, I'll let you clap on that because you're clapping for the lord You're, you're clapping for the truth that he fills us and he can be found in his word. He can be found in our prayers, the time that we spend in prayers. prayers is a discipline. We talk about this all the time. It's not something that you, I mean, yes, I, I talk to God all the time, you know. But there's also times that I discipline myself to set aside that I try to place higher on my priority list. Because when you get busy, it's the stuff on the bottom of your priority list that go. So if prayer is on the bottom of your list, then you're gonna, it's going to always be something you don't do. You have to elevate it and put it at the top of your priority list. Set time aside every day to spend in prayer. And I don't care if you sit there for 10 minutes with your mind trying to discipline that mind on, on, on Christ while it roams on other things. It's the discipline. If you're going to pray in the way we should pray, then you have to discipline yourself. And, and it's the whole ball of wax. It's worship. It is the corporate worship, what we are doing now. It is the singing of godly hymns, like we do here. It is the taking of the sacraments, which is another means of grace. It is tithing to your church, because when you give, you show the Lord what's really important to you. It is Christian fellowship. It is Christian service. All All of these things go together to elevate your redeemed self. Because it's going to be your redeemed self, folks, that can love your enemies. Now, I want to leave you with this. Towards what end? I started out by saying in the beginning that how do you authenticate yourself? How do you authenticate your message? You know, the world out there needs to hear the gospel. We try, in every way we know how, to try to, to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and most hearts and minds are just completely dead to it. How do you reach a fallen, skeptical world who doesn't put any credence in you or God or the gospel? How do you reach them? Well, you do something impossible. That's what Jesus did. That was his modus operandi. He did impossible things. And, you know, people could say, he said, if you don't believe me, at least believe the signs. And people did believe the signs. They could not doubt the fact that he did miracles. They may have disagreed on what that meant, but they were blind when they said that. Jesus authenticated himself through his mighty miracles. The disciples authenticated themselves through their miracles. You authenticate yourself by doing something that is humanly impossible to do. And what is that? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You see, that's something that a human being can't do. Only God can do that. And when God does that through you, he is manifesting a miracle that has happened in you. Now, some people like to say that our... Our love and our forgiveness and our mercy are miracles. They're not really the miracles in and of themselves. The miracle is your soul. The miracle is your redeemed self. That's what the miracle is. And all of these things that Jesus is teaching us and telling us to do are manifestations of that miracle so that the world will listen to our message. That's how we authenticate ourselves. By loving With our redeemed self. So, brothers and sisters, let me just... uh, I know I've already told you I was leaving you with something, but I mean it this time. Let me just leave you with this. So you want to reach the world, huh? You, You want to reach that son or that daughter or that friend at work, that person who's in your neighborhood. You want to reach them with the gospel. Well, do something impossible. Do something that is utterly humanly impossible to get their attention. And what is that? As we have said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are actively abusing you. And not only will they see the light of Christ in you, not only will they see you do something that is humanly impossible and begin to listen to your message, if they have ears to hear, but God will be glorified. And that's what you're here for. You're here to glorify God. And he has worked in your heart the most amazing miracle. And when you follow these kinds of instructions, you glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Pray with me. Oh, dear Lord. um, I think we're striking at what the core of being a Christian is. That the miracle that you have worked in us is the modern-day miracle. And the manifestation of this miracle is our changed heart. And your love, your forgiveness, your righteousness, your holiness that dwells in us. And, and, And if it only dwells in us, then the story is incomplete. That we need to shine the light that you've placed inside of us so that that light is clearly seen in the darkness. So that those you are drawing out of darkness can be drawn to that light. Lord, help us understand that these aren't just commands. These aren't just moralizing. This is not just an ethical standard. This is really core foundational to the growth and the building of the kingdom of God. And for people to understand and listen to and actually hear the good news. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.